Thank you, everyone. You're very kind. Thank you. Just the whole idea of a group going from here to Africa excites me. And I, I came here not knowing that that's where our conversation would go. And uh, I'm very excited about the idea. I've taken several groups over. Um, some years ago, I took a medical team over, but we, we, we focused in Kenya. And uh, we had the time of our life. And uh, when we got there, I, I, I spread them out across the country of Kenya. I hired Missionary Aviation Fellowship and flew some nurses up into the interior uh, to work up in some very difficult areas. Those ladies came back with stories that would melt you to tears. And it was just on and on and on. It was an incredible thing. And I've taken a, a number of people over and it would just be such an honor if that would come together. It was in 2001. You'll remember uh, the story as it unfolded, uh, the Twin Tower attack in uh, New York City. As it turned out, I was under attack. Uh, I was running for my life, uh, being uh, pursued by uh, rebels from the Sudan. And uh, there was great concern uh, for my safety for a number of reasons. And uh, there were burned out vehicles along the road that we were traveling that had been shot up by uh, uh, snipers uh, and then bombed with uh, hand grenades and whatever. It was a very, it was a very uh, exciting uh, few days, uh, to say the least. And uh, to shorten our journey to get out into safety, we crossed the Nile on a raft. So like I'm talking about excitement on the edge here. But when I got to this village where we knew we would be safe, uh, I got out my little shortwave radio, turned it on, and we're just sitting out in the garden. I just got out of the vehicle. We had just unpacked it. I'm sitting there turning on the radio, and what do I hear but the BBC shortwave sending out messages around the world, and all I could pick up, if you've ever listened to this kind of a shortwave radio, sometimes you get poor reception, and you get what's called skip. So you pick up a couple of words here, and then you hear all this static, and then another couple of words here. So here, essentially, is all I managed to get. The United States of America is under attack. Uh, the White House, there's a, there's a plane heading for it right now with the intention of blowing it up. The Pentagon's on fire, and part of New York City's on fire, and another plane's been uh, 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 crashed uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania. I just got all these little snippets. And I had no idea uh, what the end result was. I just couldn't get enough consistent uh, news. And so I was visiting, in fact, at that time, in the house of a doctor that evening, uh, friends of mine for many, many years. And uh, so I think it was to get my mind off of, is there going to be a home for me to go to? You really wondered what's going on this side of the world. She said, David, why don't you come with me tonight? I have to go over to my maternity ward. So her name is Priscilla. And some years, uh, she was raised in Uganda. Mom and dad were missionaries. Went back to Germany where she went uh, pursued her medical practice. And once she had all of her credentials, she said, Daddy, I have to go back uh, to where you raised me. So she went back to Uganda and started a practice in a mud hut. So by now, 2001, several little buildings had been constructed, one of them just for 
maternity. So she said, why don't you come with me? I wasn't ready for what I was going to see that night. I was already traumatized. Run for my life that day. Last night, slept in a, in a hut, and they had guards all around the hut hoping to protect me overnight. And then racing for uh, the Nile to, to escape, got to this uh, place and heard skip on the radio that United States is under attack for by who knows. And now I went over to this maternity ward, very dimly lit, and when I walked in, I was devastated. Because this room, this uh, building that uh, I don't think it would be as long as this building, very, very rude construction, and uh, it was bodies. It was mothers cradling their children. And uh, so many of those little babies were crying. And this is how medicine is practiced in many of those countries. When a mother shows up with her child, you don't say, okay, well, we'll admit the child. Mother, you go home, and we'll put the child in the bed. There are no beds. So you bring your child. We inspect the child, decide this child needs to stay. So mama, you find a place. So she goes in, and she lays on the floor. It's okay. She always sleeps on the floor. And uh, But now she sleeps on the floor with her child so that now if the baby cries, mother can manage the child. It was wall-to-wall -wall bodies. Like to walk through there, you had to walk where their feet were because, you know, the rest of the floor was covered by their frame. You had to walk among their feet to manage to get through. And as I went with Priscilla, and she's looking at these little children, putting her hand on their brow, this one's got a major temperature, calling a nurse over, do this for this one, do this for that one. I started to cry. I'd never imagined such a situation. And uh, when I went outside, I had a flashlight, and I turned it on, I looked. There were more people, there were more mothers with children sleeping on the ground outside than there were inside. And I was just, I was heartbroken. I had trouble sleeping that night, and in the morning I said to her husband, Sigmar, I said, take me back there. I want to see this in daylight. So we went back, and I stood outside this building that I just described, and there's this high, rather rough hedge, not well-maintained, just a hedge. And I walked over and looked over that hedge, and here's a piece of property. I said, who owns that property? Well, he said, uh, it would be the township. I said, is it for sale? He looked at me and he said, a Mzungu with money? I'm a Mzungu? He said, a Mzungu with money? It's for sale. And this just come out of me, Pastor. I just said, find out the price and let's buy it. He said, what are we going to do? I said, you've got to have a proper place to house those children, to house those mothers. And that's how it started. And uh, the Lord just led. It was just an incredible thing. I went over to Germany and met with some leadership there. They raised money there. I raised money in Canada. And today there's a two-story building. This thing is massive. Now, they can handle a 1,000 children tonight if they need to. It's just absolutely incredible. Little babies' lives are being salvaged. And to think that maybe... Maybe it's a children's hospital, Pastor. This is not for this is a children's hospital. So if there's a, a lady who has expertise in looking after children, my father, what a wonderful place. What a what a wonderful I, I just don't know. When you talk like this, my heart leaped within me. So I don't know where this goes, but the Lord knows. And then of course we're working also in another part of that's in Uganda, another part of Uganda, where um 
I, I'm overseeing a Canadian contingency where we are raising awareness here in Canada. We're saving the grandmothers and grandfathers. Here's a little known piece of fact. You know that AIDS has just done such devastating things to the population. Whole villages in Tanzania, whole villages in Uganda wiped out by AIDS. Here's the interesting thing. The people who died of AIDS were the sexually active people. So what that left was the elderly and the little kids. So now you have a grandmother, you have an elderly lady whose son, daughter, and it could be multiple, two, two daughters and a son, whatever, and those kids are all dead. But they were supposed to take care of Granny in her elderly years. She has a little patch of garden, but she, she's unable to work it. Her house is falling down. Her little house, her little hovel is invaded by mosquitoes at night, at night carrying malaria. She hasn't got the wherewithal to even patch the walls of her house, which are just made of mud. But she's got arthritis in her hands. She hasn't got enough food to exist. But, the, but those kids of hers that died, they had kids, known as grandchildren. We have grannies in Uganda who are raising four and five and six grandchildren, and they can't manage for themselves. So there's no medicinal help for the children, no, no medicinal help for granny. The children are almost naked. Uh, we found one granny who was living in her latrine because her house collapsed. It's a mud house with a thatched roof. Her house collapsed. A latrine is just a hole dug in the ground with some logs over it and a little bit of a grass macaca around it to give her a little bit of privacy. She found some pop bottle plastic cases. You following that? The, you know, the crate. And she got a couple of those, placed those over the logs that are over the pit and put some branches on it and that's her bed. So when she needs to use the latrine, she moves the crates, uses the latrine. We're talking about flies, we're talking about filth, and then that's her bed. All she needed was a house. So we put some money together and we built her a house. And uh, so we're providing medicinally. Here's the deal. We have close to a thousand senior citizens who have been rescued through this ministry and just a couple of months ago, some research was done, and 76% of those seniors have given their lives to Jesus and are attending an evangelical church, going to Bible studies and prayer meetings, and that local church has embraced this elderly person and is taking care of them. So we turn out to be kind of like a, a good Samaritan outfit where we lead granny to the Lord, say, there's a church, but we already have an agreement with that church. We take her to the church, and we say, you look after this granny. If you have any expenses, you let us know. But we're going to send somebody to check on her every week anyway. So now this granny who had no dignity in her life has a congregation that is surrounding her and are loving her, a pastor who cares about her, and now our people, volunteers, who go and visit with her every week. So that's what we're doing in Uganda, rescuing seniors and their children. Those little kids need medicinal inspection. Somebody needs to look in their mouths and examine their teeth. What do we need to do here? 
uh, they get these little bugs between their toes called jiggers. Those can really, really give kids trouble. If a child should venture into Lake Victoria and go swimming, they're liable to get something called Belhartsy. It's a bug that goes through the crevices in your body. Any body opening, they go in. They set up a nest in your liver. And you can tell the children as you go through villages, you know which ones have Belhartsy. So, and that can be cured with proper medicinal help. So, can you tell? Like, I'm 71 years of age and I retired. <laughs> I keep on retiring. You know what I found out, Pastor? You got to get a hold of this. I found out that every time you decide to, re I've retired four times now. You know what they do when you retire? They throw you a party. I love this. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to retiring again, but not anytime soon. So, you know, if the Lord puts together a team of people, it's got to be something that's birthed in your heart. Nobody's going to come to you and say, you need to do this. You, no, no, it has to be something birthed in your heart. Because it's not a thing where you take your camera and take a gazillion pictures. You can do that. But it's not to go on tour. There will be challenges if you go. And you just have to be so filled with a sense of urgency in your own heart. The Lord wants me to do this. And then you'll make it. And I'll tell you what. It is a life-changing journey of a lifetime. And uh, I think everybody ought to go sometime. So talk to your pastor if it's on your heart. And I don't know where this goes either because... We've never really discussed it. I'm, I'm listening. So, the Lord be praised. Amen. So I got to finish a story that I left you. I left my wife on a on a deathbed this morning, didn't I? I'm sorry about that, uh, but it was okay. She got <laughs> she's she's all right. Um, she was dying, and uh, this is a principle that I learned. I told you this morning how devastated I was. How I was in trouble. I was trying to call out to God, and I felt that I couldn't get through. And why did I feel I couldn't get through? Because I wasn't getting the kind of answer that somehow I thought I should be receiving. And so I was letting the circumstances dictate to my soul. I let the circumstances dictate to my soul. My soul is my mind in my emotion and my will. My mind examines the circumstances my mind examines what I think are the observable facts those facts if they be troubling affect my emotions and so my emotions start to sag because I'm thinking so much about the negative characteristics of the facts of the situation and because now my emotions are down now my will begins to also crumble. My desire, the pressure that I have inside to get on my knees and call upon the Lord to read the scriptures, that starts to fade. I've lost my sense of, of push and will because my will is affected by my sagging emotions and my sagging emotions are being fed by my negative thoughts. That's my soul, my mind, my emotions, and my will. Once my soul gets into such a deplorable state, and David knew about that. Come on, soul. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Forget not his benefits. When your mind begins to review the benefits, the blessings, the promises of God, forget not his benefits, soul. Come on, soul. Bless the Lord. David was one who knew despondency. 
He's a person that probably knew very much about depression. If you'd never been depressed, get ready. It's a party that nobody else gets invited to. You have it all by yourself. Been there, done that. So I was going through great, great difficulties in my own heart, my own mind, my own will. I was, I was feeling utterly destroyed. And here's an interesting thing. I prayed. I felt like I was getting nowhere. But the Lord awoke a lady in our church early in the morning and spoke into her spirit. This lady wasn't troubled by the facts. Her emotions were not down and her will was strong. She got a message from the Lord, go to April. That's my wife. Born in May, but named April. So she, this lady, Pauline Mallory, Pauline Mallory uh, didn't have a bus license. Uh, bu uh, no, <laughs> that was me with a bus license. She didn't, have, she didn't have a car license, so she boarded a bus, took probably three buses to get to the hospital. She pushed the same button in the elevator that I had pushed, the number three. When I pushed that number three and I got to the third floor, that very morning the door opened. There were nurses all sitting at the desk. When they looked up, they recognized me, but they saw a pastor, a young man, with tears running down his cheeks. I couldn't face April. I didn't know how to handle today because the doctor only two days ago said it won't be long. So in my head, today might be the day. And Marlene, I couldn't get off the elevator. I just stood there looking, and the doors closed. I rode up and down. People kept on getting in the elevator. Here's this poor guy standing there crying. And an elevator is the most difficult place to meet somebody. It's not a place to say, oh, how are you doing? My name's George, and I'm here to sell popsicles. What are you like? Elevators are strange places. You're in, these, you're in this place with these people. If the thing crashes, you all die together, you know. If it stalls, if it stalls somewhere between the 18th and the 19th floor, you got to hope that the elevator music is upbeat because you're going to be here for a while with these people. The phone doesn't work. You know the routine. I'm in alone with this, in this elevator. I'm crying and nobody knows what to do with me. Finally, I got enough spismerinctum that the next time it stopped at three, I stepped out. I walked right by her door and went to the far end to a room where I could have a pity party because I felt terrible. If I went in that room, I was going to have to pray. I didn't know what to say anymore. What I wanted to say is, God, you've let me down. That's what I wanted to say to him. Lord, are you deaf? <laughs> What are you doing, God? I was really upset. I was. I'm just be. I want to be honest with you. I, I, I couldn't handle this. God's man of faith and power. I went down to that room at the very end of the hall where you can sit, watch television, or do whatever you want. So I sat there feeling sorry for Dave and wishing I could walk in that room and be Oral Roberts, Benny Hinn, and all the rest of these all put together. Somebody get up in his prayer tower and pray for my wife. My prayer isn't working. While I'm down the other end of the hall, Pauline arrived. Pushed the same number three. When she got off that elevator, she was a woman with a mission. She had a mission. God had prompted her. She's here to pray. When you're a man or a woman with a mission, you are dangerous. Because the enemy doesn't know what kind of facts to trouble your mind with 
to crush your emotions and break your will. She was a woman with a mission. She stepped out, walked into the room. My wife was either asleep or uh, she wasn't responding. When I was in there, she wasn't even responding to the nurses. She was like a carcass. I don't know what that's all about. I have no idea. But when Pauline walked in the room, stood there quietly praying, April opened her eyes. And between the two ladies, they tell me that the words came out of April's mouth, Pauline, you're an angel. That's the words that came out of my, my wife's mouth. Pauline said something like, dear, conserve your energy. I'm just here to pray. I'm here to beseech Jesus. I just want to pray. Pauline prayed a simple prayer. Keep in mind, she did not arrive in a stretch limousine. She didn't have any catchers. She didn't have an organist and a piano player. She didn't have a choir leader. Billy Graham didn't even know she was on the move. Benny was somewhere else. Oral was in his prayer tower. Pauline was alone, but she was a woman with a mission. She prayed a simplest prayer, gave April a little kiss, and left. Pauline missed the rodeo. She left. I'm at the other end of the hall feeling sorry for myself and feeling sorry for April. I didn't even know Pauline had come and she's gone. April says Pauline could not have been off the floor. She could not have got on that elevator yet. And my wife felt something move in here. It became animated. And she thought, what is this? So she had this little button which calls for a nurse. So a nurse came running down the hall. They're all worried about her, right? They walk in, and what that nurse saw scared the living daylights out of her. She went racing for help. I'm at the other end of the hall. I don't know what's going on. Now I get enough nerve to go and see her, and as I emerge out into the hallway, I see nurses coming and go out and going out of that room. And as I started to hastily go down the hall, a nurse turned and looked at me. Think about this. They thought she was dying right now. And the nurse put up her hand like this and said, not now, Mr. Forrest, not now. And I, I went into a stage of panic. I thought, dear God, no. They're not even going to let me in there. I'm like, I've got to get in there. She said, David, you go to the end of the hall, I'll let you know. Here was the problem. My wife was giving birth to a tumor, a cancer the size of an inflated football. They thought her whole insides were coming out. They'd never seen anything like this. Scared the living daylights out of them. They're rushing every which way. They don't know which way to go. Because this woman is falling apart in front of them. But she wasn't falling apart. It was Jesus. Dr. Jesus had shown up. My wife gave birth to a tumor. <coughs> I haven't even read my text yet. <coughs> my wife gave birth to a tumor. Finally, I'm thinking, okay, they're starting to slow down. I'm watching. I'm watching. And now I see all these young men and young women coming down the hall in white coats stethoscopes, what have you, these are all interns from McMaster University Medical Center, which at the time was a new emerging hospital. Pause for a moment. A few years ago, I was in Vancouver. I got a phone call 
I'm Dr. So-and-so. Are you Reverend Dave Forrest? Yes. Did you, is your wife's name April? Yes. You were in Hamilton, such, yes. I have to see you. So I go to this doctor's residence. He's a retired medical doctor. He said, you're David, yes. Your wife is April, yes. Your wife was very sick, yes. He said, am I ever glad I found you? He said, I'm a very old man. I don't know how many hours or days I have left, but I was determined to find you, sir. So here he had moved to Vancouver. I never heard of this man. He said, David, I was the chief push at McMaster at that time. I got the phone call. Get every intern you've got down to here to St. Joseph's Hospital. We got to show you what an aspirin can do. <laughs> and he boarded all these. Young, they hired a fleet of taxis. Get these guys down there. So I'm down the hall, and I'm watching all these guys coming and going, these white coats. I'm heading down the hall. Not now yet. Not now, David. I'm thinking, come on. What is going I still don't know what's going on. Finally, a nurse came and said, now you can come in. I walked in. My wife is propped up on pillows. She looked like something that had escaped from a death camp. She weighed nothing. Her hair was matted about her head. I can't describe how skinny she was. But that skinny little framed person had the most beautiful smile, and Marlene, these were her words. Hi, honey. It's over. Jesus was here. She had a tumor inside of her that was like this, and the doctors couldn't touch it. It was cancer. By the way, this doctor in Vancouver named it, and by the way, he said, your wife is one in a million. That specific cancer doesn't happen to ladies. Your wife is one in a million. He said, never mind the survival rate. There is no such thing. He said, as far as I'm concerned, your wife is the only survivor of that trouble. He said, David, your wife is a walking miracle. She walked out of that hospital on her own steam. I'll give you her phone number if you want to call her. She's a great grandmother now. We have nine grandkids, three great-grandkids. Jesus is alive. So I finally finished this morning's sermon. I think I went long this morning. I finally finished it. It took me all day to do that one, huh? I told you I'm a storyteller. Do you know what's wonderful? The promise in the book of Revelation. They overcame him. Who? They overcame, they overcame him. Who? They overcame the devil by the, by the blood of the lamb and by the, hello? By the blood of the lamb and the, you have a full understanding of what the word of God is, right? And we understand that this word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Think about this with me. Your testimony is this word personified. So when you give your testimony, don't you downgrade your story as something less powerful than this book. When you tell your story about what God has done in your life, you're retelling the story of Jesus. You're just doing it in your own translation. They overcame the enemy. They overcame the devil. 
by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Because your testimony is the word of God in the flesh. When you tell somebody, like I used to teach this years ago, tell people how to share their faith. So I taught them about the Romans road, Romans 3.23, 6.23, You know that one, right, Pastor? And people couldn't remember it. What was that verse again? It was like the guy who was told, jump out of the airplane with his parachute, uh, count to ten, shout Geronimo, and pull the cord. So all these guys are jumping out. I won't tell you where the last one was from. You'll be offended. But there was this one guy in the plane. He jumped out, and they closed the door. Ten seconds later, there's a pounding on the side of the door of the airplane. They open it up, and he says, what's the name of that Indian guy again? <laughs> okay, so people, for <laughs> people forget about all these verses. Was it John or was it the Apostle Paul? Hey, listen to this. Listen to this. When you give your testimony, you're telling the reality of John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. When you tell somebody that Jesus made himself alive to you, and you discovered that when you prayed a prayer to him and asked him to come into your life, life came in, the lights came on, joy came in, and now you know it's settled with God, that's John 3.16, but it's your own rendition. They overcame the enemy by the word of their testimony, empowered by the blood of the Lamb. Don't you underestimate the power of your story. All of these people who are getting saved today, this was a uh, this was a study. I don't know if it was by you know this guy named Bar uh, Barnan. Uh, there's these people who do nothing but study trends in the church, trends in society, and then looking at the balance between the two. Is one of those guys who did this study, and they discovered that 80% of the people getting saved today in the world now. So this is including the incredible revival going on in China, South America, Africa, all over the world. And the story is this. 80% of the people who are getting saved today are getting saved because of their introduction to the miraculous. They're understanding Jesus is alive. Jesus is. Pastor, I have it on videotape. I videotaped people in Ethiopia who had been totally committed Muslim people and they got saved. And you know how? I've got a whole string of them. And they were unrelated people. They didn't know each other. Every time I heard this story, I said, stop. I'd get my video camera. I videotaped it. And here's the story. He came to me in the middle of the night. Who? This man with nail prints in his hand. The stories are endless. It turned out to be Jesus. The supernatural is bringing people to Christ. But your story introduces the supernatural. So don't underestimate the power of your story. They call me storyteller. I'm proud of that. I love that because I believe the power of a story is nothing short of incredible. By the way, that's how you win African people to the Lord. They're not bookworms. They don't have great libraries. Do you know how they know everything that they know? These stories. The old tell the young their stories. So when you're over in Africa, you tell us stories, and the people sit there glued to you. They want to know about Jesus, but they learn best through a story. I have a story for you tonight. Anybody like bedtime stories? Good, but this ain't a bedtime. This one's going to keep you awake. 
This one's going to keep you awake at night. And this one's found in 1 Samuel, and it's in chapter 30. And let me set it up before we even start to read. David. David has been anointed by Samuel. David has defeated the giant from among the Philistines. David fell into poor relationship with Saul because Saul was desperately jealous. The Bible talks about how all the songs of Israel were now about David. They used to be about Saul. Now everybody is praising David. So Saul's intimidated by this. Now Saul hates him. Saul is being driven by evil spirits. He's out to kill David. David literally had to run for his life. And as he ran, as the Lord would have it, other men came and sought him out and joined him. And now he has a band of men numbered in the hundreds. And where did they go? They actually found favor. Are you listening to this? They found favor with who? The Philistines. The Philistines. After he killed their giant, they loved him. So he started running with the Philistines. And what he was doing is fighting the enemies of Israel with the Philistines. Day came in chapter 29 when, the Phil when these Philistines said, okay, it's Saul's turn. We're going after Saul and his son Jonathan, and we're going to take on the Israeli army, and we're going we're to kill them. David said, let's go. I don't know what David was thinking, but the Philistine commanders came to the chief guy and said, there's no way we're taking this David with us. We're now attacking his people. What if it's a plan? What if he's actually a spy? So the leader of the Philistines said to David and his mighty men, we gave you that town of Ziglag. Your wives are there. Your children are there. You go home. We'll take care of this. So the story picks up there. David and his band of men are heading for their town. It's called Ziklag. David and his men reach Ziklag. On the third day, took them three days to get home. <clears throat> now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they were on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. David and his men cried out loud until they had no strength left to weep. David's wife had been captured. Verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men, his own friends now, <coughs> were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. And then here is the most unique phrase. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Now that's the NIV. Who has another translation just of those words? But David found strength in the Lord. That's NIV. Anybody else got another translation? What have you got? It's ESV. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Ha! Mine says he found strength. ES says he strengthened himself. Anybody else got a translate? Yes, from the back. Sing it out loud. Thank you, sir. He encouraged himself. 
He strengthened himself. He found strength. Anybody else? We got some more translations here. No? You're forgiven. Okay. I'm kidding. There's no discrepancy here. Each one of those is endeavoring to give us the sense, the gravity of it. David, David's soul was salvaged. Remember that tirade I went through a few minutes ago? The mind, the emotions, the will. His soul was in trouble. The souls of all of his men were in trouble because they had facts before them. Their wives, their children were missing. <laughs> so just let your imagine grow wild, as I'm sure they did. Their children are being beaten and abused. Their wives are being raped. Maybe their wives are being killed right now. Just their imagination would run wild. And they were so beside themselves. And they looked at David, and they blamed David for this. This is your fault. You're supposed to be the man of God. We're supposed to be following a man who knows the Lord. And look at the mess we're in now. And so now among themselves are conspiring to kill him. Somebody must have slept, slipped over to David and said, David, I hate to tell you this, but your friends are about to, about to, they're about to rock you. Like you're going to die, man. Like you've got to figure this out. And the word says that David found strength in the Lord. Now, all of my days, whenever I got to that verse, like every other verse, Pastor, I read it and I said, yes, David found strength in the Lord. And then I went on to read the next chapter. But now I'm old and I read much slower and I can't get on as fast as I do. So I land on a verse like that and uh, my wheels get stuck. And I say, David found strength. David encouraged himself. And my question is, okay, how did he do that? How did he encourage himself in the Lord? He found strength. Where did he find strength? So let's fast backwards for a bit. You know all those genealogies? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. So boring. You can read the Bible pretty fast if you skip those pages. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what. Slow down. There's wealth. There's wealth in those pages. I have done several studies on my own just taking and following the trail of these people. And among the many, many things I found, I found what I thought was a strange one. I found the name of David's brother's mama. And then I found the name of David's mama. Not the same name. Huh. Is that significant? Maybe not. But then a really strange story emerges. We're a prophet starts heading for the house of the house where David was raised. His father's name is Jesse. When the prophet's heading for the house of Jesse, everybody along the way, their jaws drop, their eyes, their eyes get wide, and they say, ah, the prophet is up to something. Where's he going? 
somebody says, I heard he's heading for the house of Jesse. Okay, what's he going to do there? I don't know. He's carrying a horn of oil. What's the prophet doing with a horn of oil? When a prophet is carrying a horn of oil, it's symbolic of something, and it's this. God is up to something. That oil speaks of calling. That oil speaks of being ordained. That oil speaks of God's choosing. He's going to the house of Jesse. God is going to cause Samuel to anoint somebody in that house. Now, Jesse's not the tribe of Levi, so he's not going to anoint a priest. He's going to that house to either anoint a king or a prophet. I wonder what it's all about. Samuel walks into the house of Jesse carrying a horn of oil. Jesse sees the horn and says, what's God up to now? Jesse's told, bring your sons before me. You know this story. Jesse has his sons all come. All these guys went and got their, got their heads shaved or whatever, <laughs> got all cleaned up, uh, doused themselves with uh, aqua velvet aftershave and walked in looking their very best, had their sandals all cleaned up. And uh, Samuel stands there and goes along, I suppose, and looks in the eye of everyone. And as he's looking at them, looking at them, and Jesse's wondering, what's the old boy up to with that horn of oil? When he gets down to the last one, he turns and he looks at Jesse. He says, something's amiss. Something's amiss. Jesse says, have a look again. I don't know what you're up to. Have a look again. These are my best boys. I didn't ask for your best boys. I asked for all your sons. Do you have another son? Isn't it interesting how the old boy starts to fudge? Well, I do. Ha, ah, we're catching on to something now. I have another one, but he's just a kid. And he's out in the fields where he belongs. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel says, I want to see him. We're now starting to catch on. The house of Jesse is a dysfunctional family. And when you understand that David comes from a dysfunctional family, the book of Psalms starts to make more sense. Come on, soul, cheer up. Come on, soul, you can make it. Come on, soul, you've been to hell and back. You can make this. You can do that. Come on now, soul. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And all that's within me, bless his holy name. Come on, soul, you've been here before. David is from a dysfunctional family. And I want to declare here and now, right now, that coming from a dysfunctional background is no fire exit for anybody. Every one of us here tonight is called of the Lord. And our understanding of calling generally has to do with beautiful people like these two at the front. They're called. We understand that. And we have ordination services, and we anoint them when we bless them. But I serve notice on you tonight. Every one of you has a calling. And that calling, by the way, has got nothing to do with a certain hour and a certain day and certain elders blessing you and acknowledging I believe that calling has everything to do with the day you were born, that God looked at you and said, I have a blueprint for that young lady, and I'm going to see to my plan. God has a plan for your life. You were called before. You were conceived in your womb. 
And the sooner we recognize that, the happier and the more fulfilled we're going to be. And the more blessed the church is when God's people realize, I am special because God chose me. You didn't choose him. He chose you. I'm special. I'm very special. Not because of my skills or my attributes. Not much to look at. If you're not handsome, you better be handy. Red, green. Ha! And how many have duct tape in the house? Hello. I see you've been to the red, green University of duct tape. Good on you. We're all called. Every one of us has a calling. A woman goes studies and becomes one of the finest surgeons in North America and feels trapped because she's looking for an opportunity. She says, I'm going to have to go to the United States of America to fulfill my dream of helping little children. And pastor whispers something, and she her comes unraveled. She gets excited. It's all about calling. She's a skilled physician. God just might have something for her to do. If it's only 30 days, if it's only two weeks, and she can salvage some little lives in the name of Jesus. I was dying in a hospital in Florida two years ago. I had a sudden heart attack. And like typical men, I ignored it. I said to my wife, I got a lot of gas. <laughs> I didn't realize I was running out of gas. <laughs> and so I was, I, I, I was delayed in getting to the hospital. And when I walked in, I said, I got some chest pains. And 27 minutes later, they called my wife into an OR and said, he's going to live after all. I had no idea. Uh, they gave me something, and I still have uh, amnesia. I have no idea what they did to me. My wife says that she came in, talked to me, said that I looked at the pictures and everything that they'd done to me, went into my heart and did this and that and the other thing. I have no memory of it whatsoever, which which makes this story a little more lively for me. It's exactly 12 hours later. It's 2.30 in the morning. I'm totally unaware of what they've done. I'm totally unaware of how close I came to going to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go tonight. And so, <laughs> so I wake up because somebody's touching me. And uh, so I look up. It's 2.30 in the morning. It's kind of dimly lit. And here's a pretty little nurse looking at me. She says, oh, David, how are you? I said, uh, I'm okay, I guess. I, why are you asking? <laughs> I, I didn't know. I'd been there and back. And she said, uh, you feel okay? I said, I, how am I supposed to feel? She said, you're not supposed to be feeling anything. Why? And she started to cry. I want to make this point very clear. She had no idea who I was. I was David Forrest, who came in and played the part of the clown in the emergency room, told 17 doctors, if you guys are done, I'm out of here. Okay? And they said, you're not going anywhere. I had no idea. They called. They called. They had a helicopter on its way to take me to downtown Orlando. They're going to cut me open like a can opener. They, they didn't think I was going to make it. And I'm clowning with them and saying, I can't afford you all on my payroll. I'm getting out of here. I had no idea. She's crying at 2.30 in the morning, and she said, 
I've read your chart. Oh, I don't know what that means. She said, I've never worked on a person like you. She didn't know who I was, okay? I'm David Forrest from Canada. That's all they knew. When I said I got chest pains, they didn't even want to know who I was. Get them in there and get going. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know I was a Christian. They didn't know I was a preacher. That's important. She's crying and she says, I read your chart. You never should have survived. I've never seen this before in my life. I've got the stats right here. This is incredible. I was too dazed and too stupid and too whatever to, to even catch on. And she's crying. She said, David, you survived. Yeah. And then she said, looked at me like this, and she took a hold of my left hand. She held my hand, yeah, like this, and she said, but do you know why you survived? Do you know why you're still here? I said, I think you want to tell me. I thought she was going to say, we got the best doctors, whatever. I thought she was going to tell me something really outstanding, you know. I said, I think you want to tell me. She said, because God has a plan for your life. God has kept you here for a mission. I don't know what. She's crying now. God's kept you here for a mission. And then she looked at me and she said, is this making sense? Because she didn't know if I was an atheist. She didn't know if I was a secretary or whatever for Donald Trump. Like she, no, I'm a lawyer for Hillary. No, she didn't, no, she didn't know who I was. And so she's asking me, she's saying, God kept you here for a reason. Does that make any sense to you? I start to cry, say, dear God, yes. She said, you have a mission. I said, okay. Okay. And then she prayed for me. And then I asked a dumb question. Where are you from? Why does a man at 2.30 in the morning ask a nurse, where are you from? It was an important question. I had no idea. Well, I'm working here in Orlando, but actually I come from a place called Orchard Park. I said, Buffalo. Oh, you know where Orchard Park is. I said, I live right across the river. I came through Orchard Park to get here. How do you know Orchard Park? I said, well, it's kind of unique. I said, there's this big church there. Dear God, you've been to my church? Well, yeah, I've been over there. You don't know my pastor? I said, oh, yeah, I know Tommy Reed. Dear God, dear God, my daddy's an elder in that church. Now she now she goes nuts, and to her, now everything's making sense. That God had her looking after me, and that she was sent by, hello, she was sent by God to give me a message, Pastor. You're 71. You should have died. But because God has a plan, you're still here. Think about it. Think about it. How did that affect me? And how's it even affecting me right now, Marlene? God kept you here for a purpose. What's the purpose? He says, well, there's this nurse in Edmonton, and I know he never knew this long story about 
the hospital that God helped me build in Lyra and the fact that I have I have it in with those people and the fact that I know a doctor in Frankfurt, Germany. If we call her tonight, she'll say, yes, let's go. There was a purpose. Listen to me, sis. There's a purpose for every one of us. And what you're going through today, whatever it is, is not scaffolding for a development tomorrow. When they built these walls, they used scaffolding, right? To put the bricks and to go higher. Please know this. Today is not scaffolding for tomorrow. Today is for today. When that young lady said its purpose, my purpose was in gear right now. And my purpose as it goes on. You know, if I'd been a pastor from London, Ontario, and you'd said, well, I got a nurse friend over in, uh, I got a doctor friend out in Edmonton, he would have gone right by me. But because I was in Lyra, and because I've been to Kenya, and because God took me to these places, it all has purpose. God has a purpose. There's no such thing as happen chance. There's no such thing as luck. Get that out of your head. You're a child of God, and there's a master plan for your life. And the very fact that David came from a humble, dysfunctional home was all part of God's beautiful function. Why did God do that to David, put him in a dysfunctional home? God didn't do that. Jesse did it and his awkward ways of trying to raise a family. And his awkwardness when the prophet said, bring your sons. He felt that that son he believed that that son was disqualified. Why did he believe that? Because there's something in Jesse's personal history that caused him to believe that boy does not come off as a regular boy. He's about three degrees below. Why? Because of Jesse's dalliance with a prostitute, with a neighbor's wife. We don't know the story. We only know that Jesse felt awkward because of David. Now David's whole story begins to take on new meaning. So Jesse says to a servant, get David. The prophet wants him. I think the little prophet's lost his marbles, but get David anyway. So you get a picture of David sitting out on the, on the side of the hills with sheep. And all of a sudden he hears a sound coming from the hills from the direction of the house. He's way out there. And he can just hear slightly his name's being called. And as he focuses on the horizon coming up over the hills way in the distance, yes, there's somebody running towards him. He's waving his arms furiously. And now his name is coming through clearer, clearer. David, David, David. A servant arrives where David is. He comes to him breathless and says, you got to come. you got to come. David is alarmed. What's happened? The prophet is at your house. He's got a horn of oil, and he wants to see you. Check this out. David outran the servant on the way back. David arrived. As he runs into the house, there stands a shabby old man with a horn of oil. 
As David walks up, he doesn't say, pleased to meet you, sir. Trust me. He fell on his knees before the prophet and said, I am here, sir. I am your servant. I can't dramatize this enough for you. I can't put the words together to make that next moment as real as it should be. But the next thing David felt was oil. Not a cheap leader bought at Canadian Tire. This was special anointing oil that had an aroma all of its own. And as it came down over David's young face, over his scruffy little beard, through his eyes, covering up his nose, falling down over his chest, he heard words something like this. David, son of Jesse, the eyes of the Lord are upon you. God has a plan. And he never forgot those words. David, son of Jesse, the eyes of the Lord are upon you. And God has a plan. Some time goes by. And David's daddy says, go to the camp of the Israelis. We're fighting those Philistines. It's bad. Take some nice foods for your brothers. Army food is not good. Tell your brothers I love them. Watch this. Jesse didn't think that David was worthy to be in that crowd. Wait. You thought that he thought David wasn't worthy of the oil. You thought David, you thought that Jesse discounted David as being worthy of the calling. Okay. What if it was, what if it was a, a 50th wedding anniversary? Would David have been invited? Well, you'd like to think so. What if it was a birthday party for old grandpa? Wouldn't that be important? I guess so. Well, how big do you want to make this picture? The man of God is visiting at your house and he's got a horn of oil. And the old man thinks in his heart, David is not a candidate. But it even skips the old man's mind. Did he even invite David? A son of Jesse is about to be anointed as the future king of Israel. This is bigger than a birthday party. This is bigger than a wedding anniversary. And David isn't even invited? I tell you, David was an outcast in his own house. And when David arrives at the, at the camp of the Israelite soldiers and walks up to his brothers, what did his brothers do? Go home and tell daddy he wants you. So his brothers disqualified that anointing service. They did not believe the words of the prophet. It was not only dysfunctional as a family unit, it was dysfunctional in the eyes of the Lord. David was called from a family that was not spiritual and had no real family unity, and it did not stop him. What made David unstoppable? His times alone with the Lord out in the fields, satisfying and soothing his own soul, singing songs unto the Lord, an outcast in his own family, but he took comfort in those days alone 
singing songs unto the Lord. He's remembered to this day as the finest songwriter of all of human history. His songs, we, we, we relish today in certain ways as we are singing all the time and sort of reflecting off of the songster words of David. The words of the Psalms are so rich and so powerful, so real, so majestic, so awesome. They were written by a young man who learned how to get along with God. He knew what it was to walk with the Lord. And out there in those hills, he heard a certain sound in his heart, in his spirit, and he tuned into that. It's like an old guy out in the hills who sat there with an old beat-up violin. But every Sunday night, he turned into a certain station from his hillside home out in the bush of, their, of, of the Ozarks. And he tuned into this very special station where there was this monstrous, glorious uh, symphony orchestra. And he listened to it every Sunday night. And when he would be listening to the radio before the orchestra would begin to play, you could hear all of the instruments tuning their instruments, the violins and whatever. You could hear them. You've heard that kind of thing. And the old boy would pick up that old violin, and he would start to tune his violin to the sounds that he heard on that radio. And when the orchestra began to play over the songs, over the radio, that old guy was working his violin. He was a man who knew how to tune his violin. Uh, even listening to the radio. David was a young man who on the hills of Galilee learned how to tune his inward violin to the song of the Lord. Out there, the song of the Lord was birthed in his heart. This was all part of his calling and his ministry. But David would become known as a worshiper, a man after God's own heart. He went out and faced the giant took a sling and he heard a sound. He heard that sound many times. A sling over his head and a rock in it. And then he heard the sound of silence as that rock left that sling. The next sound he heard was that stone as it went between the ribbons of armor and struck soft spot right there he heard that rock hit that skull he heard as clear as could be the thunk and then he watched that giant crumble like a train wreck he heard in his mind for the rest of his life the sound of armor of a giant as he collapsed on the ground he would never forget the sound of the armor crashing on the ground. Guess what was the next sound he heard? He heard the whole Jewish army screaming at the top of their lungs. He did it! He did it! And now they race for him. They hoist him up on their shoulders like the guy who did the winning punt at the football game. Or that Raptor guy who, I don't know what he did. I've never been to the game. I guess it's good when he when he jumps up there, hangs on the hoop, and then, I think that's cheating, he hangs up there and pops. I, I don't know. I don't understand the game. But David was a celebrated guy. Listen to this. For the rest of his life, he'd never forget the sounds of victory as those, that huge army, thousands are shouting, David, David, David. He'd never forget it.
this day, they arrive in Ziklag. Their houses are burned. Their families are gone. And their imaginations run wild. I'll never see my wife, my son, my daughter again. And they took counsel. We're going to kill him. And what does David do? We say very casually, he found strength in the Lord. Whoa. How? Now watch this. It says later in that chapter that David took counsel and asked the Lord, what should I do? Between the threat of his death and his inquiring of God, what should I do? There was a span of time. And that span of time is described as the time that David found strength in the Lord. What happened in that span of time? I'm going to say it as simply as I know how. He remembered. He remembered. David, son of Jesse, God's eyes are upon you. The Lord has a plan. He remembered the feeling of the oil running down over his face. What an awesome moment. He remembered. He remembered. He remembered that giant crashing to the ground. What a wonderful sound. He remembered how God had delivered the giant and how the whole Jewish army's mentality changed in that very moment. He remembered. That's how David encouraged himself in the Lord. I told your pastor this afternoon at lunch that I was reminiscing as I drove here. It's a lot of hours for me to have a talk with myself. I'm really good at it. I, I'm no endless of talking. Pastor said that last night. He said, 11.30, can we quit now? He couldn't get, an ad, he couldn't get a word in edgewise. I'm really good at talking. So, and I practice on the highway. <laughs> and I told him how I was reminiscing about an hour in my life when I was pastoring a little dinky church up in northern Ontario and I made it a practice just to get alone with God. The congregation was so small, I did all the visitation there was to do in the first five days that I was there. I had nothing left to do. <laughs> so I just spent time seeking God. And one night, alone in that tiny church, there was a breakthrough in my heart. I never had a moment like this before nor since. But I had this breakthrough in my spirit and there's no way to describe it because even if you'd been there it wouldn't have made sense but you know when you're knower when you get through or when God breaks through and all of a sudden words came out of my mouth I told the pastor this today it was like I was speaking a prophetic word it just rolled out of my mouth I will work a work in your day that if I were to show it to you now you'd never believe it it's found in the book of Habakkuk. Remember we 
read that prayer this morning. I will work a work in your day. If I were to show it to you right now, you'd never believe it. Now, it, that was a denunciation word. That was a threatening word. If you don't straighten up your act, I'm going to do something. And if I were to show it to you, you'd never believe it. But I wasn't reading it in its context. God was giving it to me in my heart, and I blurted it out. I will work a work in your day. If I were to show it to you now, you'd never believe it. I danced all over that tiny basement of that church. I danced, Pastor. I danced. I laughed. I cried. I came unglued. God's going to do something. God's going to do something. It was a word that I got from God. It was like the horn of oil. It was like David, son of Reg and Marion Forest. God's eyes are upon you. He has a plan. I will work a work in your day. If I were to show it to you, you'd never believe it. And then God compounded that. As I prayed that prayer and prayed that prayer, God, you're going to work a work in my day, work a work in my day. And one morning, totally alone, I went out to a quarry where I went every morning of that year and had a time of prayer before God. Five o'clock every morning, I showed up in a vacant quarry. It was no longer being worked. I'd pull in there in my little junky car. And there I would wait upon God and cry out to him, say, Lord, you gave me a promise. I'll work a work in your day. If I don't show it to you, you'd never believe it. And that one particular morning, I felt impressed. I got out of my car. And I went up this, this, uh, th this side of this rock pit, got my shoes full of sand and grit. But I, when I got to the top, I didn't know why I was climbing up. When I got to the top, here's this massive cornfield. I can still see it. As I'm standing here looking at it, it's so majestic. There was a gentle breeze that morning flowing over the cornfields of London, Ontario. <clears throat> and I never noticed a thing. I was raised in the farm, but I'd never noticed this before. I don't know why. But it was like the Lord kind of opened up my eyes to a, a beautiful reality. The leaves way over there, like half a field away, were leaning over. And these were still... And just as those leaves were straightening out, because the wind stopped pushing there, it's now pushing here, and then it's pushing there, and then it's pushing there. So it was like, wait, it was like somebody had their hand, and they're waving it, waving like this. I burst out singing in tongues right then and there. And then I broke into like an interpretation, and it came out something to the line of, the Lord is going to do a work in, in worship and in praise like you've never seen, and get ready for it, get ready for it. And as I stood there I saw it I saw it it was like it was like a vision the Lord kept on impressing me with these pictures with these concepts it was line upon line precept upon precept until the day came when I actually saw it in our humble little church the pastor came and preached on and that little humble little church that building would hold about a hundred if we were all skinny the Lord filled that place to capacity. The Lord led us as a congregation. We went and bought a nice piece of property. Miracle after miracle. We did not have the money to build it. And we went ahead and started putting footings anyway. Like I was a reckless nutcase. We built that place. And the first Sunday morning service that we gathered. When I went to that town, there were 23 people. On the first Sunday morning in that new building. When they gave the altar call. Over 20 people came forward and made a first-time decision for Jesus. I had a midweek service, and in six months, I had two Sunday morning services. Sunday night services, people brought their own lawn chairs. We were packed to capacity. 
I never gave an altar I gave an altar call every time I preached. Twice in Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. People got saved every service. And on the first Sunday morning of the month, we had communion service. And the first Sunday night, we had water baptism every month. And we never baptized less than 50 people. I stated a rule to that congregation. Got to the place. I said, we can't. We got no room anymore. And I'm not going to start another morning service. We can't have service here at 5 o'clock in the morning. So here's the rule. You can bring your friends here to get them saved. But they can't stay. We got no room. So I sent them to the Salvation Army, to the Baptist. I sent them to the Pentecostal church who was having trouble. Hello? Huh? We started sending them all over the city. I had a rule. And even when they were coming forward and when the people are kneeling there and they'd finished them the prayer and giving their life to Christ, I said, now you'll find a good church to go to. I'm really sorry. I apologize. You can't stay here. We're full. I will work a work in your day that if I were to show you, you'd never believe it. And some of you right now are having a hard time believing their story. I'm telling you, because it sounds so outlandish. First Sunday night every month, Pastor, I sat in the front pew with a microphone. I said to my deacons, I'll win them to the Lord. you got to baptize them. I never went in the water. I'd sit here on Sunday nights, first Sunday night every month. I'd laugh and I'd cry through the whole thing. It was the most amazing thing. During our work, you see, he said he'd do it through worship. Okay, during our worship times, sweetie, when you lead worship, watch for this. Watch for the wind blowing over the leaves. Watch for it. Do you know what started happening? In most of our services, Pastor, I never came into the auditorium until at least a half hour after the service was supposed to begin. I waited because if I came in, Everybody would say, oh, he's here. Okay, now it's time to change. We're going to start. I stayed out of the auditorium. People would come an hour early, Marlene. They were coming from Rochester, New York, from across the road, uh, across the, uh, the river. They're coming from Detroit, from across from Sarnia. They're coming from Owen Sound, from Kitchener. They were coming from all over Ontario. And I'd walk out to that place. I'd say, dear God, where are these people coming from? And they were coming because they wanted to be a part of worship. I will work a work in your day. I was not the worship leader, folks. you got to know, I did not do any of this. Listen to David. I'm just David. I put my trousers in one leg at a time. It was not me. I will work a work in your day. Walk before me. And God says, I will show you. I will show you the supernatural. But you've got to go with my plan. Almost every service in the midst of worship, People would get out of their seat, come down and drop on their knees. They wanted to get saved. Carolyn was a hooker. Art was a drug dealer. Bill was a transvestite. I won't describe what he looked like the night I went to visit him in his home. You'd either cry or you'd be on the floor laughing yourself. It was just incredible. This bag of people. Druggies, everything imaginable. Brian, Brian Marsh had been raised in a Pentecostal church in Hamilton. He came to our service. God delivered him from demons because he was a drag queen in the homosexual whatever in downtown Toronto. He got set free. He got set. Brian got set free. It was a God thing. It was just a continuous flow. The bank managers were coming. The mayor showed up. 
We now suddenly had on Sunday morning five nuns who came in their habits. They now had a new good habit. They'd come walking down the aisle. They'd lean beside a pew. They'd cross themselves and sit in. I had some ladies come and say, Pastor, you got to stop them from doing that. I said, why? Well, that, I, I don't understand what they're doing. I said, if you don't understand it, let's not curse it. I said, I think they're praying. We need more prayers. I had every Sunday morning three United Church pastors who came to our service, to the first service. I met them at the door. said, you guys are here every Sunday. What are you doing? And your callers turned backwards. They said, they said, they were three pastors of United Church in the city. They said, we come to your first service on Sunday morning to get our engines charged up to get ready for the day. We sense the anointing here. We sense the presence of God here. That one pastor said, I don't want to face my congregation if I can't get here and be a part of what God is doing. See, he didn't say, David, you're this. David, you're that. It wasn't about me, Marlene. It was a God thing. That stone finding that giant sweet spot on his head was a God thing. That was a God thing. That was a God thing. And when you learn to remember these things and rehearse them, they overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. What is the word of your testimony, sweetie? It's remember what God told you last year and the year before. It's remembering, and it's the word of your testimony to yourself where you say, come on, sister, cheer up. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Your testimony is the most powerful word that God has given you for you. Rehearse your testimony and tell it and tell it and tell it. It's powerful. Watch what happened to David. David came back and said, you guys can stone me if you want to, but I have a word from the Lord. God said, go get them, and I'll lead the way. They pursued them. You know the story. They overtook those crazy Amalekites, beat the living daylights out of them, they got their wives back. They got their children back. They never even lost their canaries. Like, one of those poor guys found his poodle. Like, the Bible says they found everything plus, plus, plus. And the result at the end of that day was they blessed people and communities all over Israel. Because God had a plan. But here's what's important. Give me your hand. What's your name, honey? Oh, that's a beautiful name. Gabrielle, here's what's important. It's important for you to hear the Lord speak into your heart and say, Gabrielle, God has his eyes on you, and he has a plan for you. Gabrielle, once you know that you know that you know, that God has a plan for you, it will change your life. It will change your life. It will change your life, darling. It will change your life. It will change you. When you know that you know that you know, God has a plan. When you get between a rock and a hard place, You'll rehearse what God said, and then you'll speak back to the circumstance. And here's what you'll say. God made a plan, and God revealed his plan, and this is not it. 
Here's what God does. He speaks into your spirit. Along comes bad news. And when you know God, you get good news. You know what the good news is, brother? The good news is the bad news is wrong. (laughs) When you walk with God and when you know that you are a child of promise, No bad news will mess you up so that no matter what facts, what circumstances start to bludgeon your brain, it will not take over. Your mind affects your emotions, affects your will. When your soul is crippled, your spirit is in bondage. But once your soul is set free, and praising him for his promises. Your spirit is free. With your soul, you connect with the world and with what you perceive as reality. With your spirit, you connect with God. As long as you're in bondage to your perception of the world, your spirit is not at liberty to reach out and touch God. You need to be set free. And what will set you free? Jesus said, The truth will set you free. I know the truth, brother. It's found in the book of Romans. Whoa, 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 whoa. The truth about your relationship with God will set you free. The truth about God's plan for you, that will set you free. And that's what sets people like me free to go to Kenya, knowing I may not come back alive to go wherever God calls me. I was almost killed by a pack of lions. I've been attacked by truckloads of angry, angry Muslims with pangas ready to kill me. I was almost killed in a rock throwing contest. Thousands of men in Mombasa, Kenya were mad about a civic problem. I was, I showed up at the wrong time in the wrong place. They turned pointed at me and said, get the Mzungu. Thousands of men came at, Pastor, they were going to kill me right then and there. The story of how I escaped is another story for another night. But I was not afraid. God has a plan. God has a plan. And this ain't it. (laughs) God has a plan and this ain't it. This is not the last chapter. He loves you. Heavenly Father, thank you that every one of us is specially chosen. Your word says that we are peculiar people, meaning we have been handpicked, highly selected, and called of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that there will be such a release right here and now at this time. Lord, you organized and you ordained this service for this moment. And Lord, I just pray right now there will be such a release in people's hearts. We give and we yield to the Holy Spirit now. Especially now. In Jesus' name. 
please know that every one of us has an appointment with the Lord. And this just might be your particular night when God will speak something into your heart, into your spirit that will change you for the rest of your days. But what you need to be is open. To open the window of your heart and say, Lord, I'm open. Speak into my soul. And how God speaks to us is 101 ways. Don't look for a voice. Don't look for a shoulder nudge. Just look for Jesus to reach in and give you a heart of hope. He's here right now. He's here right now. Is your heart open for God to speak into your heart? Would you stand with me? Musicians, I love you. No pressure on you. You come. Uh, just Even just the keyboard, whatever. We, we shouldn't be singing. We shouldn't be in a hurry to just sing even now. Just go, keyboard, would you help us? And instrumentalists, help us. As we just, even now, just allow what God wants to do in our hearts. And you know what? We don't have to stay here till midnight. I'm, I'm not one of those. I want us to stay individually. Each person stays as long as you want to. And you're free to move along whenever you want to. There's no bondage like that. Just we're wide open. But the Lord wants to speak into hearts tonight. He wants to speak a word into your soul. And that'll come about by, however, it might be through the pastor or his wife or somebody else laying hands upon you and praying. I've been at altars where all of a sudden the spirit of prophecy came over me. I met a young guy, oh, about five years ago. He said, you remember you preached for six weeks in a row in Queensway Cathedral in Toronto? Yeah. Do you remember Do you remember me? I said, no. He said, David, you came over. I was kneeling at that altar. He said, I was crying my heart out to God. He said, you started praying, and all of a sudden you burst into a prophetic word over me about how I was called. He said, my dad was right behind me. He said, my dad and I had been talking about, well, Daddy, how do I know if I'm called? I feel something stirring, but is it just me? And he said, David, you came and you prayed over me that night. And he said, you spoke it into my heart. He said, David, I'm in full-time ministry today. God gave him a word, and I just thought I was praying. But you listen, and the Lord will quicken your ears and help your hearing. God will speak into your spirit. And it'll happen as we just come and just wait before him. It might be quiet or it might get boisterous. I don't care. I'm not in charge. But if we just come and gather around this altar, I believe God's going to put something in our hearts that we'll never forget. You can start coming anytime you want to. Let's just come and find a place at this altar right now. A word will keep you going when all else seems to be falling apart. A word, a word will come and burst into your heart that'll just, it'll just put rivets into your soul that'll never break down. 
and if you feel disposed anyone in this house if you feel